Welcome back to episode number 202 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. This is a podcast for building a global community around process safety, industries handling combustible dust. I'm your show host, Dr. Chris Cloney. In today's episode, we are carrying on in our series, The Ripple Effects of Westray. And we are fortunate enough to have on the call today, Vernon Thoreau, who is the author of the book, Westray, My Journey from Darkness to Light. We're we'll talking through his experience living through the Westray disaster 30 years ago. Also, what he's been involved in and how his work has progressed since that time over the last 30 years. And more importantly, the experiences he's had living through what really was one of the largest industrial disasters in Nova Scotia, um, something that's near and dear to my heart as a large combustible dust challenge as well. So we're going to do that in this episode today. Vernon, I do want to thank you for the work that you've done um, and thank you for coming on the podcast today to, to talk with us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to do this. It's something that has to be done and I give it all my heart to do this stuff. Well, it really shows. I had learned about Westray. Well, geez, I was only five when it happened, <laughs> but I learned about it you know, earlier on in my career, probably 15 years ago, looking at combustible dust. I was fortunate enough to meet or have several calls with you over the last year on this topic. You know, I've read the technical stories, the discussions, but what I learned from you and from your book was the human side of the impact on the people involved, on the lives and community members of those that were lost, on the province of Nova Scotia. And that's a lot of stuff that we want to highlight in this series. Last week, the audience would know that we covered sort of an introduction to Westray, more the technical side of things. We talked about the Westray story predictable path to disaster, which is the outcome of the public inquiry of the province of Nova Scotia, uh, written by retired justice Peter Richard. So in last week, I covered kind of why we're doing this series. I covered what happened from you know a technical discussion point. Now, today and next week on the podcast, we want to start to get your experience, Vernon. Before we get into it, I really want to kind of highlight three goals that I have from this series. So one, we'll have people listening to this that are working with facilities that are at a high risk of having a fire or explosion or a large loss incident. And it's really important to share the stories like this one, like Westray, like this predictable path to disaster so that we don't forget and so that we can support those people that are working in those facilities to make the best decisions possible. So that's my goal number one. My goal number two is we will have people listening to this podcast that are working or close to those that are involved and have suffered from industrial accidents. Uh, either they've been a consultant on the job, they did hazard analysis before things went bad, they worked as health safety manager on site. I want to give them some insights into the mental health challenges that are likely to involve, be involved in those that are, are impacted by these devastating events. And the third and, and the most important is I want to promote the work that you're doing, Vernon. I had talked last week on the podcast about this ripple effects of Westray, this need for another book that discusses the mental health challenges that workers who suffer from industrial accidents go through, like Westray. I know something's close and near, dear to your heart, and I'm hoping that this interview series with myself and with you and with the others that we get involved uh, can really contribute to that. So thank you again, Vernon. I know it's a little bit of a longer introduction, and we will get into the discussion from here, but I appreciate it. Yep. It's uh, very important. So... I'm going to read just from the, the book here, Vern's brief bio. I'm going to read the summary of the book, and then we're going to go into Vern's experience, why he thinks, you know, another, why he wrote that book, why another book's needed. We have here in the, the bio, Vern Thoreau was a miner at the Westray Mine in Plymouth, Nova Scotia when disaster struck. 
taking the lives of 26 workers. In the aftermath of the 1992 disaster, Burns struggled with post-traumatic stress disorder, with challenges with literacy, with several things that you go through in your book and very open and vivid detail discuss. You did receive the Medal of Bravery, which is a, a medal honored in Canada for those that showed bravery in hazardous circumstances. And I, I want to highlight three things here. So yes, you were very involved with the rescue efforts and, and showing bravery in hazardous circumstances. But I think writing your book showed a lot of bravery. And I think even more, Vernon, talking about your story from here out and hopefully getting into the second book about the mental health challenges, it's also showing bravery. So thank you again for all of that. I'm going to just read the summary off the back of the book, and then I want to go into the discussion from there. So summary off the back of the book says, and you get access to this book on Amazon. If it's not Amazon, you can go to the book publisher, Nimbus Publishing, which is nimbus.ca. Just type in Westray there. We'll have links in the show notes at dustsafetyscience.com slash 202-202. For all that material, we'll have Vernon's email or we'll have my email as well. And if you're new to the podcast, the first time you ever listen to Dust Safety Science podcast, which is very likely for many folks that are coming in from the Westray background. Thank you for listening. And you can always reach out to myself or Vernon if you want to share your story. It doesn't have to be an interview. It can be just via email. Include that into the development of a manuscript going forward for the second book. So just from the back of the book then, a summary. At 5.18 a.m. on May 9th, 1992, the Westray mine exploded in Plymouth, Nova Scotia taking the lives of all 26 miners underground. As residents scrambled to learn the details of who was trapped, rescue went into action, working for days, perilous conditions to find the men. Vernon Thoreau, an off-shift Westray miner, was one of the rescuers who received the Medal of Bravery for his work. Tragically, there were no survivors from Westray, and only 15 of the 26 bodies were recovered. Westray became a symbol of employer neglect, of government indifference and became a rallying cry for the labor movement and the families of the lost men. Out of the Westray disaster came the Westray Bill, a federal law aimed at protecting worker safety, a law lobbied for under the banner of No More Westrays. In this book, Vernon describes his experience at the Pictou County Mine, the struggles after the disaster, and how he found new purpose when he joined the United Steelworkers' year-long lobbying for the Westray Bill, which became law in 2004. So that's sort of the, the Coles Notes summary version in the back of the book. Vernon, sort of get started in the interview session here. You know, why did you write the first book and, and why was it important to do? Well, there's so much that had to be told. And uh, after doing the rescue, going to see the doctors and realizing end up having mental health problems. And years passed by just not being myself. And there was the, uh, the inquiry. I went to sit back at the back of the, the room, listen to the inquiry, listen to all the lies. And, uh, stuff that should have been done that wasn't done. And, and then I, uh, I had this all in my mind, but still trying to cope with life so hard. But uh, I ended up getting back, I ended up getting my time back in Trenton Works, and then I got involved with the union there. 
But then I end up going to Ottawa because I got involved with the union there. Found I had to get myself involved in stuff ever since Westray. And then uh, when I went to Ottawa in 1999 with the steelworkers, wow. Then I found myself getting involved with the United Steelworkers in Ottawa, lobbying to get Bill C-45 passed into law. And while this was going on, I was interviewed by a reporter and he suggested I should write a book. Well, I kind of put my head down and I looked at him in the eyes and I said to him, I sure wish I could write a book, but I can't read or write. Then I broke down after that. It was so emotional for me to say that, but it was true. All I knew how to do was work. Show me what to do, I do it. I could do it with my hands, but read and write, I couldn't read or write. And uh, that was a turning point for me. But then he said to me, he said, Vern, put it on tapes. Put it on tapes and you'll always have it so that you can use it later down the road. So that's what I did. I ended up getting a tape recorder and I taped my story. And I think I had something like a dozen tapes what, before I was done. And I, I didn't realize that it, it was going to take as long as it did. But 18 years later, I got my book out and you couldn't ask for a better book. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Vernon. And um, it's quite emotional hearing you talk through that story. Just that, um, you know, the reporter saying, well, you should write a book. And had you had you talked to anyone about the literacy challenge that you're having, reading and writing, like previous to that point, or at least publicly? Or is it sort of, was that the turning point when you started to talk more openly about it because you do talk openly about it in your book. And I think it's tremendously valuable to the, the people that are reading or that are reading the book. I don't know. I would say, how did that feel? But that's not the right question. Um, no, I, I try to get people to write my book. They say there's ghost writers. I, I tried and tried. And then actually I had somebody out of Toronto that was a retired school teacher that came down with Peter Boyle and Mike one year they came came to Pecto County and uh, he said he was going to do it but I had all the tapes I send them to him him and his sister was going to do the uh, the book and then uh, he had problems health problems and just one thing after another so after a year and a half, almost two years, I just asked him, I said, could you send the tapes back to me? So that's what happened. He sent the tapes back to me. He, he had so many issues himself that he went through. 
So there was one night I just said, hell of this. I just late at night, I get loose leaf paper out and I started writing. And the thing was when I was writing, I couldn't, couldn't spell right. Or I couldn't, you know, I had a hard time. So there's a lot of blanks. You ever see the word puzzles? Well, that's what my papers were looking like. It looked like a crossword puzzle that you had to put uh, words in the blanks. But uh, that's something I did went as far as I could in the the paper. And then I got my family, my daughter, my sons, people that visit, asked them how to spell this, how to spell that. And then I filled it in and then I, I got it all done up. And then I got my sister to, to type it out for me on paper. And then I was sitting here with the book waiting for somebody to kind of edit it, but I couldn't get anybody to edit it. But it wasn't really ready to edit because there, there was a lot to be done to it. Because what, what I did is I gave it to my mom. She's a reader. She got grade 12. And uh, I gave it to her and I asked her to look it over and give me opinion. What you think, mom? What do you what do you think about it? An honest opinion, just because I'm your son, just don't say, yeah, it's good. So she took a month, she read it, and she got back to me saying, yeah, there's a story there. There's a story there that could be told. It's, it's a good story. But then she said to me, why did you put yourself into that? Why were you working there? It was dangerous. I said, I know, Mom. I know. But it paid the bills. Guaranteed 25 years work. That, you know, she just shook her head and said, no, you shouldn't have been there. What was it? Four years, 2014. My cousin, marriage, marriage Cody. Me and my sister were going in Superstore. And we ran into marriage. She retired from being operator for MT&T. We were talking. And then at the end of it, before we were leaving, I said to her, Marge, would you be interested in doing a book? And she said, what do you mean a book? I said, I wrote a book about Westray. It took me 14 years so far, but I'm hoping to get it done. And, and she said, well, she said, drop Drop it off to me and I'll read it and then I'll let you know. Well, she got back to me and she says, I, I want to know one thing, Bert. Are you doing this to make money? I said, no, Mert. I want my story told. I want the world to know about Westray and what it was like. It even helped get the bill passed through too, right? I said, I got two parts of history that I was involved with. I want the public to know what I went through. She said, perfect, we'll do it. We'll write it. And the next four years at my kitchen table, not every day, there was days that she, I found this out afterwards. 
she didn't want to work on it too much because it was bothering me. She could hear it in my voice when we were doing the book. She said, I had to break it up for you, Vern, because you were getting so pressured. And <laughs> I said to her, thanks. <laughs> she realized how much pressure was on me of doing that. But one of the things she did it too, this book, is she said, it's just not the work and people getting killed at jobs. But she said for the mental health part of it, people got to know. What can I say? The Nimbus published their book. They took it on and they, you know, they said we did, me and Marge did an awesome job on the book, but then they put their touch to it. And then we get a powerhouse book there. Yeah. Thank you for all of that background, Vernon. And again, the, the book title, this first book is Westray, My Journey from Darkness to Light. And again, you can find it on Amazon. If for some reason you're listening to this in the future and it's not there, you can probably find it through Nimbus Publishing. That's nimbus.ca. You can email me, chris at dustsafetyscience.com, or you can email Vernon. Uh, it will have his email in the show notes at dustsafetyscience.com slash 202. I'd encourage anyone to get that book. This podcast series is not necessarily about that book. <laughs> this podcast series is about the follow-on work that is really important on the mental health aspects of people that lived through these challenges. You can hear it in Vernon's words, all I knew was how to work. And when I think about some of the large-scale disasters we've had in the last five years, Didion Milling, um, even back as far as you know, Imperial Sugar and those workers that lost their lives or that were impacted, um, in a lot of cases, all they knew was how to work. So just sharing your story, Vernon, is tremendously valuable. It's hard to, to fathom 22 years to write the, write the book and the degree of difficulty to write that it would have been to do that. So I would encourage anyone to do that. There's two pieces I want to talk about. I think we'll probably get the, the first one out of the way um, immediately. Is I want to talk about why we need an, another book, where you think we should go from here and, and why we're doing this podcast series. But the, the obvious question, the, the listener to this podcast mind is going to be, is marriage going to help with the second book? So I think we'll tackle that first. Can you just share with the audience? So they're um, just on sort of marriage now and, and, and where you're at trying to get this you know, next book out and why we're doing this series. Well, marriage Cody, in 2019, me and marriage talk about because the assess that was involved with this book was blew me and marriage away, even marriage, like after doing it. And uh, she couldn't believe how people were interested in it and how powerful it was. Yeah, it was great. And uh, my book actually got a story in the Reader's Digest, the Canadian Reader's Digest in 2019. In 2019, I end up going to Pittsburgh to a steelworkers health and safety. And I thought I was just there to sign books. I end up getting the J. William Lloyd Award. Wow, that just blew me away. I, I wish marriage could have been there with me, but she was home. I got home Friday. Saturday, I had to go to Halifax for a book signing at the library in Halifax, Nova Scotia. I went to that, and then when I get home Saturday afternoon, my wife wanted sliced pizza. So I went down to the pizza shop here in New Glasgow, 
got some pizza. While I was in there waiting for the pizza, I met Marge Cody's brother. And uh, he said, did you hear about Marge? I said, no, I didn't. I have been talking to her in about a couple of weeks because I was in Pittsburgh. And then I was doing a book signing today. I just got home. But he said she's in the hospital. And he didn't say any more after that. So I got home. I called her son. And her son told me that she was in the hospital because she's full of cancer. She had cancer all through her. I said, I want to go and see her. Can I see her? And he said, uh, come in tomorrow. So I said, yeah. I said, I got something I'm going to take in with me, though. The next day I went over this year and I, I took the award that I received. And she received, too, because she was a big part of the book with me I showed her that and uh, she teared up I teared up and she said that book is doing great and I said yes Marge it is and a big thanks to you of helping me get the story out and uh, a week later Marge passed away in 2019 so uh, I can never get her to do the second book with me. We talked about it. Unfortunately, she passed away. I do appreciate you sharing that because it's an important part of, of our journey together, Vernon, when you had reached out and we discussed Westray and I wanted to have you on for the, for the podcast back then when we talked and then I got to learning your story and, and what do you want to do with it with another book about these mental health aspects and then asked about marriage and and you told me all you basically told me that whole story and and it's quite emotional to think about so since that time that was probably six months ago eight months ago we've been trying to figure out how can we make this book a reality i don't know why i didn't think of it sooner it seems obvious when uh in hindsight i guess but you know a month or two ago kind of kind of had a thought well maybe we should shoot podcast episodes and we'll create a series about it sharing your perspectives and the perspectives of anyone else that wants to share their experience through westray and we'll create the podcast episodes. Now, there's something, Chris, I wanted. In 2018, after the book got launched, I, I was going to do steelworkers conferences and tell them my story and what it was like to work there and to get help get the bill passed through. But then when, when I was home here in Nova Scotia, and I went and did book signings at bookstores. The people come up and they tell you exactly where they were the day, May the 9th, 92, when the mine blew up. They told me right down to the point to what they were doing. And oh, it, it just melt my heart to listen to it all because May the 9th, 92, my involvement was underground. I didn't know what was going on in the world after that. All my thoughts were underground doing what I could do for those 26 workers and help our dragomen get in. And, you know, I had a job to do at that point that I didn't realize until well, even years after the mine, you know, after the mine, we called it off. I still... I went through a bad time of life that I didn't want to talk to anybody. But now I, I don't mind talking about it. And it's, it's years later, though, but it's uh, 
a helping problem. I think it is. Uh, if sometimes I can't find the right words to use, but yeah, it helps to talk about it. To it's part of the healing process, I guess. Might be a way to. Yeah, it. and the thing about PTSD, I deal with PTSD, and it's something that I had learned even more in the last couple of years. Once you got it, you get it for life. You're taking it with you underground, six feet underground. But don't take your life too early. Life, you can learn to deal with it. And this is one of the things that I want this year, second book out, to try help people deal with mental health. I want to cycle back to your experience of Westray, and we may even do that in a different podcast episode. We'll see how long, long we kind of run for. But let's talk about that second book because we've talked – we sort of talked around it. What what do you think was missing in the first book? And then what do you think we need to do to have the the most impact in, in the second book that we're trying to at least collect the material up together through this podcast now? I'm happy with my first book. Still, I did not think it would ever happen. Thanks to Merch Cody and everyone else who supported me. But now, I believe being a part of this second book on mental health is to help people realize and see and to understand the precautions of workplace accidents and deaths. Besides the justice side of matters, that is also a lot of mental health side of things that a lot of people do not see. That's, you know, it's a big part of it. But we have had folks on from the United Support and Memorial for Workplace Fatalities. That's a United States group that has um, a lot of families and survivors and, and victims or families of victims involved in industrial accidents. And those were in episode 126 and 127. Um, In 126, which is at dustsafetyscience.com slash 126, uh, that's with Tammy Spivey. And she talks about losing her brother in the Hayes Lemmers um, aluminum dust explosions that happened, I think, in 2003. Tanya Ford in the next episode, who also is the current person running that that group, the New United Support and more workplace fatalities, she lost her uncle in a grain bin incident that happened at a grain processing facility. And we also had several other people talk about their experiences over the years in industrial accidents. Uh, we had one on Peterborough with, with Jane Gill, talk about her grandfather actually died in, in 1916 in the Peterborough Quaker Oats explosions. She talked about the impact on her, on, like multi-generational impact. So the impact on her family, her father, and the impact on her 100 years after, after that incident. So we sort of touched on these mental health aspects and long-term social economic aspects, you know, the largest employer of a community going out of business due to an industrial accident has a tremendous impact on the economics of that community and on the um, trauma in that community and many other aspects. So we touched on it a bit, but we haven't until now, until with this series going to our fifth year of the podcast, had something that's so, so concerted in, in towards trying to drive some, solutions to these challenges. And so when you talked about marriage not being available for the second book and we talked about how putting these podcast episodes together, that's what this is for yeah. for the audience is to collect the stories 
We're going to do our show notes that we normally do. We're going to create full transcripts. It's usually 20, 30 pages for, you know, a 45 minute interview and sort of like where we'll find ourselves in a funny way, I guess in an ironic way, where you were for six years before you got your book published, where we have several scribblers full of, of notes. And then we'll figure out how do we make a manuscript from that. And I know you want to put all any proceeds that are generated from this book. So you asked, you said, Marge asked a really good question. You know, are you doing this to make money? And the answer is no. We're going to try to put as much, if not all, the proceeds from the sale of this book. And when I say we, I mean you, Vernon. I, I'm just, I yeah. just get to talk and run the, run the interviews. Yep. But um, you will be putting any of the proceeds back into supporting mental health of those that have suffered from industrial accidents, their families and their communities. We haven't figured out the mechanism of that yet, but we have figured out, okay, well, let's just capture the information on these interviews and at least start down the track. And in six months, we'll have done whatever it is, 48 interviews on the podcast in general. We'll probably have 10 or 12 or more or less, we'll see, about this ripple effects of Westray. And hopefully we'll have our scribblers full of notes that we can start working on manuscripts from there and, and support that effort. So I would say it again, if you have a story about Westray, email me email Vernon. You can come on the podcast and talk about it. That would be a, a, you know, a great way to share with the broader community or just write it down, send it in. We'll include it in the collection of material for the second book that, uh, that Vernon's trying to put together. If you have a story about your own industrial loss, send that in as well. It may not be for this second book, The Ripple Effects of Westray, or maybe, I don't, we'll have to see. Maybe we have a broader you know, discussion about the long-term impacts of these Type of industrial actions on mental health and and why support is needed. That would be another great outcome of this. Yeah, so that's the reason why we're doing this. <laughs> that's that's quite quite emotional. I mean, let's let's try to extract some of the start of your first book and just share with the audience. I know we have you know a pretty technical audience of normal listeners about Westray, about the conditions of the mine, what happened, and then we'll come back next week and talk through more of this. The thirty years since Westray. Um, how long, if you don't mind, if you're comfortable sharing, you know, how long did you work at Westray before the the mine explosion actually occurred? Before I started working at the mine, I worked at a Crown Tire, we uh, tire outfit, Bridgestone, and we had the contract to do all their tire work over at the mine, and uh, that's what I done there for two years right up to December, 1991. They were looking for coal miners, but before the coal mining, I tried to get in as a welder first. Uh, They were looking for welders and uh, I did some welding. So I went over, did a test and then uh, he said, yeah, you're a good welder. But what happened is, they didn't hire me as a welder because Gerald Phillips hired his brother-in-law. So that was out. So, but then the other father that did the welding test with me, what I did for him, he said to me, he said, uh, what about coal mining? Would you like to be a coal miner? And I said, well, I don't know. I have to see what it's like underground. Never. I said, my grandfather worked in the coal mine. There's a lot in my family. He said, well, you said you want to go underground, see what it's like. So the next day I went underground to see what it was like. And it was different. It's not what I thought it was going to be. It was pretty high. I thought the coal mine, when you talk about coal mines, I thought they were going to, you had to 
bend over and go on your knees and walk through the tunnels. But this mine was the new generation mine of uh, driving big machinery underground to get the coal in that. It was different. I told the guy, yeah, I think I'll give it a try. So you see, that's no problem. So I started in December and I started on a, a crew of, we were putting arches up. And that was a kind of your day shift job to get you used to underground, get you used to things. I was on that for a couple of weeks. Our responsibility was to put arches up where they needed them. Actually, that's where I learned underground how to drive a dozer because we needed somebody in our crew to operate a dozer underground there. And I was pretty good at operating stuff. I couldn't read or write, but I could operate stuff. And I jumped on it. Ten minutes later, I was driving the dozer up and around the tunnels. We had put a water line up that, uh, in the next week or two. But couple weeks into it after that, I ended up being on a delivery supply truck. They had trucks. Yeah, trucks with boom, booms on them. The boom we had to, well, that's what he had to use to put on the back of the truck because there was some heavy stuff. We always made about five to six trips a day going underground on a shift, a 12-hour shift. Uh, sometimes you might not even get that many trips in because certain areas they had to go in that took you longer than others. But the responsibility of us were to deliver supplies into the area underground where the miners were working. And that's right up to the face of the mine where they were doing their cutting and then they were putting cage up. We had to do that. But me and another guy was working on the supplies truck. And then he got hurt just a couple weeks before the mine exploded. After he got injured, I was doing the boom truck two to three weeks by myself, right up to where the mine exploded. And believe it or not, that's one job you shouldn't do by yourself. Because if I was in an area dropping off supply and that boom truck flipped, nobody would be there to give the uh, help to somebody else. And was that common that they were sort of short staffed or, you know, one person doing multiple jobs or challenges like that at the time? Well, see, the thing was they did have a couple other guys on the, uh, that I started out on the uh, putting up arches and that getting them used to the underground. But he told me, he said, See, the mine blew May the 9th. Actually, I was in on an overtime shift that day. But when I was in that day, he told me, he said, Vern, you're, you're coming in Monday. My regular shift was Saturday. But he said, you're working Saturday and Sunday. When you come in Monday, we're going to put you on a crew. They had A, B, C, D crew. And he said, you're going on a crew. We're not sure which one we're putting you on yet. But two other guys are going to take over the boom truck. So at that time, like there was works into getting two on the boom truck, but I went a couple of weeks by myself. Yeah. That was scary enough. 
you were working on May the 9th. Uh, I guess you were working the day before, the, the evening before the explosion happened? Well, actually, I was on my four days off. May the 9th was my fourth day off, but I went in on overtime. And we worked 12-hour shifts. So I went in at work at 7 o'clock that morning. And I was getting off at 7 that night. And then my regular shift out would have been Saturday morning at 7 o'clock. And the explosion happened at 5.18, so two hours before you went in. It did. Yeah, 5.18. So I ended up going down on the rescue instead of the regular shifts. And what were some of the conditions like in the mine, you know, leading up to the explosion? Like what I want to kind of dig into is uh, we hear a lot from our audience and people that work heavily with uh, fire and explosion safety is that people just, you know, don't think it will ever happen to them. You don't really recognize that you're taking the sort of risks you are until something happens, until it's too late. And what I kind of want to get, I know some of the answers from the, the inquiry and things, but it's just that, you know, what were the conditions leading up to it? Was there any appreciation by the workers or management that an explosion could occur, meth, uh, gas explosion or a dust explosion? Was there any, you know, cleanup programs for the coal dust that was in the mine or, you know, methane gas detection systems? Like just, and we don't need to, people can go read the 300 page or whatever it is, inquiry report and the other information there. But yeah. just from your perspective, you know, what, what was the condition in the mine leading up to? And did people appreciate that this sort of disaster could even happen? I, I didn't realize it working there, but I know for a fact myself and other guys that worked there, like we had to put tape around the top of our boots so the our boots wouldn't get full of coal dust. The coal dust in some areas were so deep and being on the supply truck, we were in areas that we had to get help drive through areas because it was like a, well, it was coal dust, but it was like going through snow. Yeah. Like that's how deep places were. We get stuck in it. So then we had to get somebody to tow us out. At, but there was areas where there was just so much coal dust that should have been, uh, I, I didn't realize it at the time because uh, they didn't learn as much about that stuff. I learned so much from the inquiry the following year than what I did underground. The year underground, it was gassy, and I didn't realize how bad it was. But uh, I was in on May the 8th, my overtime shift. This is the shift before the mine yeah. blew. I was driving uh, a scoop. That morning when I was in, they asked me, me and another guy to go down in the mains and there were supplies down there. They were cementing a wall and we had to remove the cement machine with uh, cement bags and that, take them out of there and put them up into another area. Well, that day I took the scoop down and I drove in. Bang. She died right on going in there. The machine died out on me. That's what it's supposed to do when it's so gassy, right? But the gas was so high that it made the machine die. We waited for about an hour, but we got the supervisor. He calls up above. He gets the, the guys come down with another scoop. They hook on to the one that's in the, the, the tunnel there, the roadway. 
they pull it out to the fresh air, it starts up. So they take that one that quit on us, and then he leave us the other one. Well, that other one, I drove right in there, and it didn't quit because I looked on the side. The machine, the thing that's supposed to quit the engine wasn't working. It couldn't shut it off because it was not working. And we loaded it up, and we took the stuff out of there. But that's things that were happening underground that management was doing, not the workers. Okay, maybe uh, upstairs, the mechanic was told by management to not have that worker. Yeah, to deactivate the methane sensor on that equipment. Yeah, so when we're same same with the air, they had uh, air vents and they had fans to get the gas out. Management were putting blocks up, blocking the fans because it would interfere with the machine of the digging the coal. So there, there was things that were being done. And the inquiry tells it all too, though, right? Like I'm telling you from what I've seen underground, yeah. but I mean, the inquiry says it all too. Well, and I've shared, I shared some of that in last week's podcast episode with the introduction to the series, but I just want, I want to get, you know, your perspectives, me sharing it 30 years later is not near as impactful oh, no. <laughs> as living through that and, and driving your uh, scoop equipment down and have it quit out because the methane levels are too high. The sensor kills the engine or whatever the mechanism is. And then, you know, another one comes down that, that works and you take a look at it and go, oh, well, the, the, the methane yeah. sensors deactivated. That's, that is um, one tragedy and two very representative of what people that will listen to this podcast would have heard from other types. It may not have been a, a methane sensor on a piece of equipment, but it could have been a dust collection system that's not working yeah. properly and just turned off. Yeah. Or it could be a, an overzealous, an overactive uh, suppression system that triggers falsely being deactivated. You've named it. People have probably heard it on this podcast. The reason that I'm for you to share this story is that that's a precursor to West. It's a precursor to these 20 plus individuals being killed that day. Yeah. That, that's you know. what, that's the way I usually say it now, Chris, one time I wouldn't say that, but I, I learned that uh, when people ask me, I say they killed 26 of my coworkers. They were yeah. killed. They weren't injured. You know, like the, it wasn't a mistake. It was a mistake, a big mistake, but it wasn't done by accident. It was done that shouldn't have been done. Like coal dust, you're supposed to remove the coal dust, put it on the belt, and takes it out. But then what you do after that is you're supposed to put lime dust over the, the tunnel. And that lime dust is kind of, it's a white powder. And that will keep the gas down. In the six months I worked there, I did a uh, one overtime shift. And the only reason I did it, they asked me to do it, and I stayed to do it. I worked four hours doing it in one area because they had an inspection the next day. They had Mr. McLean come in the next day, Albert McLean, the health inspector. And they had to get some of that out. That's the only time, the one time in six months that I did it. 
And the only time I ever seen it in the six months being done was when I was doing it. I never seen it done before. Talk about the conditions of the mine. We talked about the fact that you were there on May 8th from your 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. shift. And then you were scheduled to go back in on May 9th at 7 a.m. The the mine had the explosion shortly after 5 o'clock. So you went in, your job was different. Now you had to do rescue efforts. Can you walk us through a bit of, of what that was like and you know what you ended, what you were actually doing to try to partake in these rescue efforts? First, I'm going to tell you where I was when I, on my way to work. Please. I ended up being directed to go to the fire hall with the families. That's where all the families were gathering. So they let us day shift guys go to the fire hall. So I was there with the other workers. We had to drive by to go to the fire hall there in Plymouth. And when I looked in there and I seen what I seen there, it didn't look good at all. But, uh, it was about an hour later that Gerald Phelps came over and asked if any of us wanted to go down on the rescue. Of course, my hand went up and then I was in the van going over and we drove up. We went into the uh, employment area, got dressed to go underground. We got breathe it to what we were doing. And my job wasn't on a dragoman. I wasn't a dragoman, but I was a beer face beer face rescue and the difference between a beer face rescuer and then a dragoman a dragoman are like firefighters they have the oxygen mass that they have on they can go into areas where a beer face miner a rescuer can't and i could only go as far as number 10 cross cut in the whole rescue that's where the air was flowing through that morning when i went in that but I went in that tunnel and just being there 10 hours before that, like coming out of there, boy, I'm telling you, I knew, I knew exactly what hell looked like. Yeah. I just couldn't believe my eyes what I seen. It was pieces all over the tunnel. Like that's, we had to clear an area to make a walkway to go through to, and the thing is, as I tried to explain about this, we had two tunnels. You had your main tunnel going down and then the other, over from it, you had your belt tunnel. That's where the belt line and the fan would bring the air out of the tunnel. Well, that fan is gone now, right? Because of the exposure. But still, though, you can get the air full. But going down, we had 10 crosscuts. Each crosscut had two doors. Door on the main road and a door on the belt road. Because you had a room in between there. Uh, you understand what I'm getting at there? Yeah, there are two parallel. If see the mining car report it makes sense so there's a main a main line and then a another line beside it yeah the belts and run and then there's cross um crossovers yeah yeah and yeah. then uh, well everything was blowing right out like those doors weren't there or whatever was their wall with loaded door everything was gone so the first thing what we had to do well 
the dragger men did it first because they they wouldn't allow us go right down until they were down three cross crossovers then we went down behind them but they were going down putting plastic up on each uh crossover and what we did after that is we try to clear the road more and then we put plywood up and we did that right down the number 10. And that's what took so long for the dragomen to get in. Like they just couldn't go right down into the tunnel to see who was alive or who was dead. And that's why it took the next day before they even got to the bodies. Yeah. People don't realize what was going on. It's, it's like firemen can't just go right into a, a house that's burning. They got to make sure it's secure first, right? Yep. And how many cross cuts were there? You said you got down to the 10th or there. Well, that's where the number 10 cross cut is where they put up the uh, the station for all the. Uh, well, number 10, you could go into the south, south main that way. And then you can go down to the mains down further. But that was your main station for all the uh, dragon men to be set up and alert station, more or less, to, you know, your uh, yep. something like an employment station. That, that was the main station okay. there, that number 10 crosscut. And uh, the teams went in from that, from that area on. A team would go in and you have another team on standby in case something happened to that team. So you always had not everybody go in and then come yep. out. It's just, you had to have certain teams ready to go. And so you mentioned that your sort of role in this was a lot of the clearing the path. So, uh, you know, plywood and structural things, what else were you in, involved in? After we got that done and uh, I, I was driving the tractor back and forth the number 10 crosscut and uh, I was driving one of the tractors and I had the uh, dragger teams taking them down taking them back up and just delivering them back and forth they, they divided our guys up our dragomen with other dragomen from Cape Britain and uh, other guys that were there doing yeah. the rescue and every time driving back up I would be talking to our guys. I knew them pretty good, some of them there, and they would tell me what's going on. It, I'll tell you, it, it, it put me just like yeah. being there with them when they were talking to me. And uh, when they did find the bodies, they asked me and the other fellow, would we, would, would we mind taking the bodies up on our tractor underground? And uh, just like my hand went up when they asked me for the rescue, I, I volunteered. I just, yeah. But I never did because what happened is they took them up at yeah. nighttime because that way the news people wouldn't be taking pictures and that, uh, you know, it's darker and it's easier to get the bodies over to the area of the garage. Yeah, it reminds me, these are the reality of the experience that you went through, but they're pretty grim thoughts too. Like I know I've, I've had family members that are volunteer firefighters and, you know, rescued or sorry, not rescued, but recovered drowning victims. Yeah. And it's the same challenge. The last thing you want to be doing is pulling up to the shore yeah. with, you know, a body in the boat. So they'll, they'll weigh the body down yeah, but until they get to shore so that they're not um, you know, causing a, a big scene. 
when I was going back and forth, there's the body bags laying on the side of the bank down by number 10 there every time, like for that day, before they took them up that night, there was, and no one that your buddies are there in that bag is, oh, it's just, uh, it's just something that you'll never, it, it's with me the rest of my life. I'll never forget it. And as you say, the firefighters, I give them a lot of credit for what they do. Uh, any paramedic, and that's one of the reasons why I was thinking the second book doing, because there is so much stress that uh, is involved with this here. It's uh, something that people have to know about what it's like and for people to live with it. And that's why I think this series is important. And that's why I appreciate you. You, I, I know I mean, you, you mentioned that there were years after this that you couldn't talk about it. Yeah. I appreciate that now you can find the strength to do that. And that's one of the reasons why I want to talk about on the podcast is this is important because the number of industrial accidents that happen, um, even the number of dust bowls, I did a presentation two weeks ago, every 2.8 days, somewhere in the world, there's a, a, a large dust explosion. Let's, large enough to, to cause injury and, and cause fatalities. Um, not all of them do, but that's sort of the, the mathematics of, of what we kind of figured out. Now, if you were to listen to the stories that come out of those, because people don't want to talk about it, you may only mm -hmm. hear one a year. You may only hear one every three years. But yeah. if we could share more of the stories of those that come out, they're true, raw stories like we are here, um, and realize that it's not, once in a, I mean, I got an email in my email inbox right now saying that, you know, dust pollution on my site is a is like a lottery win. It's one in a billion. It's not. We just don't talk about the outcome enough to realize that's not one in a billion. Mm -hmm. um, that it's it's a much higher probability than you may think. And then if you multiply that by the impact of something like this, the generational impact, the thirty year impact, cause for pausing and making sure and doubling down on doing things in in a different way and changing yeah. our perspective. And, and if we can get that sort of pause from sharing these stories and then the support um, beyond that for your mission and helping uh, workers with mental health, that's a really good outcome from what we're doing here, Vernon. Oh, it's, it's nonstop. And ever since I started lobbying and I realized every, after so many years gone by, it's uh it's always uh, something new pops up or I, I tell you, I'm to a point now, Chris, in my life. Well, the last couple of years, when I see a death on the computer of somebody dying at a workplace, it just tears my heart apart. I just yeah. feel so bad for the families and the co-workers that that person that it, that worked with their loss it and it shouldn't be i mean there is accidents but we have too many accidents we have too many there's not much else much else that you can say other than that um, it's in the title of this westray report right a predictable path yeah. disaster preventable um yeah. and sure maybe there is one percent of these that are true um, accidental in nature couldn't have been prevented in any way but yeah. there's 99 percent of them that are preventable yeah and predictable yeah. um, and we have the tools to be able to do that um, i think we'll probably close off this interview for today vernon we're gonna get you back on next week on the podcast 
to talk through kind of the second half of this first book, I guess, if you will, like your experience after Westray, after the rescue attempts and, you know, your involvement with the Westray bill and that lobbying effort. And again, to sort of introduce this as a topic, I guess, if you could put it that way to the audience to kick off this series on the ripple effects of Westray with hope that other people reach out and that we're able to, to develop this into, into where your work's headed moving forward. Anything you want to leave people off on this uh, episode? I, I just hope everybody, I'm sorry for the pauses in my voice that it just, it really eats me apart of uh, no. Westray. Westray is hard on me. It always has been, but uh, I, I know I said I didn't talk about it after years later, but I, I don't mind talking about it now because it's a very important story. And I, I did tell my story in the uh, the book that I wrote, Westray, My Journey from Darkness to Light. And as I said, the dark, I can always remember coming out of the tunnel. It's dark, but yeah. we, I see the light. And that little light is a dot. And then till we get to the top of it and we're into the light. But it's uh it's a story it's something that is never going to be uh done i th- i think in life i'm going to be doing whatever i can but i, I just thank everybody to listen for listening and uh and there i just let you know there's a lot more to come yeah okay we'll close this one off for today vernon um thank you again for sharing thank you to the audience for listening and we'll have you back on the podcast next week to talk through sort of the second half of the book. Thanks, Vernon. We'll be talking soon. All right. Thanks. So you've been listening to myself, Dr. Chris Cloney and Vernon Thoreau, author of Westray, My Journey from Darkness to Light. And we've been talking through why he wrote the book, um, why we're partaking on this series, this ripple effects of Westray. And his experience through living through was a major disaster, preventable industrial accident that seriously impacted the community and, you know, took the lives of of, uh, many miners, 26 in total that were involved at Westray when it happened. So it was a pretty emotional interview, pretty emotional discussion, pretty raw, and it's important. And I wrote down a, a bunch of, thing like basically every time i teared up when i was listening to Vernon talk um, i wrote down what he said so i'll i'll recap some of the big ones here all i knew was how to work and that is just a, a tremendous note bullet point that we've heard from others have talked about this sort of aspect of survivors and and family members of those who have lost their lives in industrial accidents in a lot of cases these are in small communities in a lot of cases these are the the folks that are really putting in the sweat equity to try to make a better life and they may not have a lot to fall back on if they're involved in the accidents or the incidents. And, and more importantly, the impact on that community, the jobs lost from that employer, you know, being taken away, those all have tremendous impacts. So the ability to even recover mentally and physically after something like this uh, can be impacted by that. <laughs> Vernon shared the story and we didn't get a chance to circle back to it about his mother reading the manuscript. And the outcome, you know, one of the outcomes to that, and there were, there were several, but one of them was, you know, why did you put yourself in that position? And geez, what a, and I get it from her perspective. Um, it, Cause I have two children. And if I was reading their story, I'd probably have the same reaction, but that's, that's pretty tough. 
like that's um it's very challenging from many perspectives and it's just you know you, everything's obvious in hindsight <laughs> after the explosion happened it's easy to establish that proper rock dust inerting program would have prevented the explosion or cleaning up the coal dust or methane gas sensors or, or whatever but that's all only obvious in hindsight we talked about uh, marjorie cody when she's writing you know are you doing this to make money and the answer being no we're doing this to get the story out there and vernon rose's first book to get a story out there Jeez, it took him <laughs> several decades and multiple mediums and and struggling through his own challenges to get that out there. And that's a really important story to share. And it really highlights the need for what we're doing here moving forward with this podcast um, series. Uh, and we talked about Vernon's experience. I'm not going to recap it. I would encourage you to get the book. It's Westray, My Journey from Dark to Light. You should be able to Google and find it. It should be on Amazon. If it's not, you can go to Nimbus Publishing. You can always email me. You can email Vernon. He'll, he'll send you a copy. You just pay the shipping wherever you are in the world. And we'll figure that piece out. And I would say kind of as a closing out, just the, the recap of why we're doing this so that we can remember instead of forgetting the lessons learned and get those lessons learned shared more broadly to encourage folks that are interacting with those that have suffered loss, suffered trauma from industrial accidents, just to be compassionate, to, to, you know, encourage those that are involved to, to seek mental health and healing processes. And we'll talk a bit about that next week in the podcast. And also important is to get the share, get the story out there. And, and Vernon mentioned, you know, you can talk about this for years afterwards. That may be the same case if you were involved in industrial accident that happened last year. But if you do want to share your story, if you are at that stage, one, realize that there's many people there. So if you are, have, you're in the very dark times, email me or email Vernon and I will personally or Vernon will personally connect you with somebody who's been through this before has made it to the other side so that's thing number one if you do want to share your story to support this project or whatever this thing's going to be you can always email me or Vernon with your story come on the podcast wherever you want to share it just uh, kind of get written down and we'll get our scribbler notes together for whatever this next manuscript is going to look like so that's it for this episode I do want to say thank you to everyone who's been listening to the podcast for the last four years we're starting this year five um, going in episode 200 and beyond with, you know, a pretty big mission here. It's not going to be all the material that we cover. We're going to have, you know, normal technical discussions on combustible dust and other things coming as well. But this is going to be a big part um, through the podcast for the next uh, next little bit. We'll be having these serious discussions on on the ripple effects of Westray. So I appreciate you listening. As always, uh, thank you for tuning in. I appreciate the work you're doing around the world. The industry's handling combustible dust, making them safer with the work they're doing out there every day. Keep it up and we appreciate you. Thank you.